This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We understand that some of our opinions will not be shared with many people and hope you can still bear with us in order to hear amazing Wisconsin-based stories. We are not licensed therapists or able to give legal advice by any means. Our show notes will provide all of our source materials included for each episode. Now Now on on to to the the show. Welcome back to All the Stints of Wisconsin. I am Fallon and I'm here with Mim. How are you? I'm doing great. What a lovely night. It is a beautiful full moon. Yeah, she's a beast out there. She's full, she's full bodied. Yeah, bright and beautiful, making everyone crazy. That's like an actual thing. It is. I forget who told me, maybe it was you, but somebody told me that police officers actually say that on full moon it's like their busiest night. Yeah, and emergency rooms. Oh, it's crazy. It's crazy to me. It is. And this is like a super crazy because of the eclipse this morning. Oh, I totally missed that. I'm not up that early. I was up, but I didn't see it either. How the sunrise? That was pretty. Oh, that's nice. I'm never yeah. up that early. <laughs> I'm too lazy for that. I can't do it. It's up at 5.45, which is ridiculously stupid early today. That sounds really gross. I'm sorry for you. <laughs> what? <laughs> but I just laid in bed and listened to podcasts. I did not get up. Well, at least there's that. At least you're not, like, jumping out of bed. Oh, no. <laughs> jumping out of bed is not my jam at all. That's, so that's... I know we're going on a tangent right now, but that's... Who <laughs> cares? <laughs> Um, that's Jake, like, he will, he gets up at, like, 4.45, and he'll, like, hear his alarm and just get up, out of bed. And I'm like, no, I gotta lay there for a minute, and especially at 4.45, I can't do a damn thing. No, I have to set my alarm early, because I have to have time. Right. To do nothing. To adjust to the thought of being awake. <laughs> mm-hmm. Another day. <laughs> And doing all the things, because I know once the day starts, it just it does not until like 10 o'clock. So. Right. Well, this is our first official late night sesh, and I'm here yeah. for it. Yeah, I'm excited. This worked out well tonight. Yeah. Let's hope we don't have any mishaps, and let's get rolling. Yeah. Who is first today? I am first. I am finally, I think, yeah, I think you are too, um, I'm finally wrapping up this whole Jeffrey Dahmer situation today, um, I'm doing his arrest, the trial, and conviction, I'm really relieved to be done with all of this, it was a lot of research, a lot of reading, um, a lot of heartache and just a whole lot of nastiness that just you shouldn't even really think about really but here it is it's actual life mm-hmm. and I'm sure you're fully over it so <laughs> <laughs> all right so I left off um, with the Oxford apartments so that is when 
uh, Jeffrey moved into the Oxford apartment on 924 North 25th Street into apartment 213, the infamous, infamous 213. Everybody knows that apartment number. Um, and that is where he killed Raymond Smith, Ernest Miller, David Thomas, Curtis Strotter, Earl Lindsay, Tony Hughes, Caneric Synthesophone, Jeremiah Weinberger, Oliver Lacey, and Joseph Braidhoft. People often ask how this happened when somebody lives in an apartment complex, um, but it's not for a lack of trying on behalf of the rest of the Oxford apartment residents. They repeatedly complained to the building's manager, Sopa Princewell, of the foul smells coming from the apartment. They even contacted the manager um, about sounds of a damn chainsaw, like a chainsaw. Oh my God. Um, so Sopa did contact Jeffrey, but he blamed the odors from his freezer breaking uh, causing the food to spoil. And then Sopa contacted him again. Uh, and the second time he blamed it on the death of his tropical fish. And I would have been like, yeah, first of all, why do you still have these dead fish just floating around? And I feel like fish doesn't smell like dead bodies. They don't. Dead fish mm. have a very distinctive smell. smell and fishy. little tropical fish are not going to smell that much. I wouldn't have taken that as like an excuse. I would have been like, um, no, sir, not, not yeah. here. And at the end of the day, I don't give a fuck what is making your apartment smell. If the other people can smell it, you need to remedy it or go. Yeah. So like nothing more was done about it. And I'm sorry, but like as a real estate investor and owner, I can positively say that her lack of action is questionable. It's negligent and just bad business practice. Like nobody yeah. wants to be living in a home where you can smell decay and hear things like a chainsaw go off in the middle of the night. And like, I'm obviously it's in the middle of the night, you yeah. know? So let's go to Jeffrey's arrest on July 22nd, 1991, when 32-year-old Tracy Edwards agreed to go back to his apartment, but ultimately was the nail on Jeffrey's coffin. We did talk about him before. Um, so once Tracy was able to free himself and get the attention of Milwaukee police, it was all over for Jeffrey. At 11.30, PM officers Robert Rauf and Rolf Mueller uh, followed Tracy up to apartment 213. They asked Jeffrey for the keys to the handcuffs that were on Tracy uh, and to be able to look around in the apartment. If a man runs to me with handcuffs on him, screaming and panting and sweating and in complete shock, I'm not just going to casually be like, hey, how's it going, bud? Can I take a look around? Like, that's red flags all over the place. <laughs> so. It's always the first thing I think you ask for consent first and then I, go to warrant I, if you can't. Right. So and I got to be kind of nonchalant about it. Right. To just get like your way almost. Yeah. 
I get it. I get it. It's just I feel like they were almost. It would be hard to do though. I feel like they were almost questioning Tracy as if like what he was saying was legitimate, and that that's what really ticked me off. Was that well because he was gay and and black, black. So and they want to hear about this gay shit. Right. Right. It's not well, how I feel. Well, they're about <laughs> to hear it. They're about to hear it. They're about to see it. So, <laughs> so they asked um, to look around, and they spotted a large knife beneath the bed, and Polaroid pictures, many of which were of human bodies in various stages of dismemberment in his bedside oh table. God. Yeah, pretty Can you imagine. Crazy. Right, you're just doing nightly patrol and then you you get called into an apartment and all of a sudden you see pictures of bodies without limbs. That's just fucking nuts. Yeah. So they went to arrest him, obviously, because that is, nobody just has that. And um, he fought the officers at first in an effort to uh, uh, resist his arrest. However, they were able to cuff him and called a second squad car for backup um but that was but that wasn't the end of that obviously it was just scratching the surface they investigated the rest of the apartment and found freshly severed heads of a black male on the bottom shelf of the fridge i said heads it's head sorry um Jeffrey watched them discover his awful dark secrets and whispered to himself, for what I did, I should be dead, end quote. And, you know, I I can agree. Mm -hmm. So that triggered a more detailed search of the apartment by Milwaukee's Police Criminal Investigation Bureau. A total of four severed heads, a total of seven skulls, some painted, some bleached, and some with blood dripping from them. Um, in the refrigerator, uh, plus two human hearts and a portion of arm muscle along with an entire torso, plus a bag of human organs and um, flesh stuck to the ice at the bottom. So really just nasty, nasty. Yeah. Um, But we're not done. So there was two entire skeletons, a pair of severed hands, two severed and preserved penises, a mummified scalp, and in the 57-gallon drum, uh, three further dismembered torsos dissolving in the acid solution, and a total of 74 Polaroid pictures indicating dismemberment were found. That's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. I would have quit my job that day. (laughs) I don't like how do you just go home and go to bed and go back to work like it's nothing after that. That's so traumatic. Yeah. And I really feel for the people that had to investigate that and witness that because that is traumatizing. And I'm sure they they never got the images out of their head. So that's just the the his his actions just affected more than just his victims and the survivors and it just affected so many people Mm -hmm. 
So the chief medical examiner later stated it was more like dismantling someone's museum than an actual crime scene, end quote. Following his arrest, Jeffrey said aloud, I trained myself to view people as objects of pleasure instead of people, end quote. In an interview with Jeffrey on November 18th, 1991, Jeffrey stated to Detective Patrick Kennedy, it was a place where I could feel at home and was a place for meditation, a place he could draw a sense of power, end quote. We all know that Jeffrey Dahmer confessed to all of his crimes. His house was a crime scene. There is no doubt about it. And he led detectives to, you know, victims' bodies and really detailed everything that went down um, with each and every murder. So then he got prepared for a trial. So first and foremost, Jeffrey was found to be legally sane and was sent on his way. So on July 25th, 1991, Jeffrey was officially charged with four counts of first degree murder with 11 murders committed in Wisconsin. On September 14th, investigators in Ohio uncovered hundreds of bone fragments in the woodlands behind the Dahmer family home, like hundreds. Oh my God. Um, Investigators formally identified two molars and a vertebrae with x-ray uh, records of Stephen Hicks. Three days later, Jeffrey was charged by Ohio authorities for Stephen Hicks' murder. Unfortunately, Jeffrey was not charged with the attempted murder of Tracy Edwards or with the murder of Stephen uh, Tuami. The decision to not charge Jeffrey with the murder of Stephen Tuami was due to the likelihood of proving that Jeffrey committed the murder and um, doing that beyond a reasonable doubt. Although Jeffrey was straightforward with his crimes, his memory was foggy in regards to this specific murder and there was no physical evidence of the crime. He did say, yeah, I think I did do it, but he was just not as certain as he was with the other ones. So they didn't have much to tie him, but it was, you know, the, his MO, it was, he said he was attracted to him. Um, so it just kind of made sense, but nobody found his remains. Uh, the scheduled preliminary hearing on January 13, 1992, Jeffrey pleaded guilty, but insane, to 15 counts of murder, even though he was deemed already to be sane. On January 30th, 1992, his trial officially started in front of Judge Lawrence Graham. Since he pleaded guilty, he waived his rights to a trial to establish guilt as defined in Wisconsin law. And Jeffrey's attorneys did present in court that he suffered from either a mental or personality disorder, but the prosecution claimed that any disorders did not deprive him of the ability to appreciate the criminality of his conduct or deprive him of the ability to resist his impulses. So, I mean, it's kind of controversial because obviously he's fucked up. Mm -hmm. Um but is he insane? That's what the whole debate was about. His defense continued the argument that he indeed was insane due to his necrophilia drive. 
Dr. Fred Berlin testified that Jeffrey was unable to conform his conduct at the time that he committed the crimes due to his necrophilia. Then Dr. Judith Becker, a professor of psychiatry and psychology, stated that he is diagnosed as a necrophiliac and preferred comatose sexual partners. Who knew that was like a thing? That's so weird. Yeah. So Dr. Fred Fosdall testified on behalf of the prosecution that his belief was that Jeffrey was without mental disease or defect at the time he committed the murders. And that just totally goes against of what the defense psychologists state because apparently well, in during the murders, he was feeding into his disorder of necrophilia. So how was he right. not affected by this mental disease? So Dr. Fozal described Jeffrey as a calculating and cunning individual able to differentiate between right and wrong. However, he stated that Jeffrey was not a sadist. Nobody said anything about him being a sadist. So I don't know why that was even part of it, but that's what he said. And after forensic psychiatrist Park Dietz testified that he did not believe Jeffrey had any form of mental disease or defect at the time that he committed the crime, stating that Dahmer went to great lengths to be alone with his victims and to have no witnesses, end quote. So I, to that, he's basically stating that he knew what he was doing and he knew why he was doing it. He knew that he was going to do something bad and he fully formed plans to do so, which I get, but he but he's so driven by the desire of being with deceased people. So I don't know. Not only that, he kept everything in his house. Yeah, he's disturbed. He was disturbed. So I don't know how people don't. And I mean, not to say that he shouldn't be punished, but there obviously was something going on because he wasn't thinking about getting caught. No. Normal people normal people normal murderers yeah. <laughs> get, the, get their bodies out of the house yeah and right. try to get rid of all evidence he kept everything yeah in his refrigerator in his refrigerator and like clearly and pictures and even just know, like the nonchalant way he went up to the police to get the victim back that right. he had the ball in his head like Sometimes so, so it seems like he didn't realize what he was doing was going to get him in trouble or he didn't care. Right. Like his mental illness was taking over is what it would seem like to me. Right. He went through great lengths to fulfill and to feed his mental illness because mm -hmm. he was taken over by it, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mine too. Forensic psychiatrist George Palmero and clinical psychologist Samuel Friedman stated that the murders were the result of a pent-up aggression within himself, end quote. Dr. Palm Palmero stated he killed those men because he wanted to kill the source of his homosexual attraction to them. In killing them, he killed what he hated in himself. These two concluded that he had a severe mixed personality disorder with antisocial, obsessive, compulsive, sadistic, and fetish, fetishistic 
borderline and necrophilic features, but otherwise legally sane. That's a fucking mouthful. Oh, that was a lot. That was and a you lot. Have, you have all of these things, but <laughs> but you're fine. <laughs> you're fine. Um, the final defense expert to testify, forensic psychiatrist Dr. Carl Wallstrom, diagnosed Jeffrey with necrophilia, borderline personality disorder, schizopal personality disorder, alcohol dependence, which is absolutely spot on and a psychotic disorder which I you know I completely agree with every single one of them yeah Um, not one of this I just feel like the rest everybody else has said that he that there wasn't anything wrong with him or that he whatever was complete bullshit so before sentencing Jeffrey prepared and read from a statement uh, prepared by himself and his defense as he faced the judge in the in the statement he emphasized that he had never desired freedom following his arrest and that he wished for his own death he further stressed that none of his murders had been motivated by hatred that he understood that nothing he either said or did could undo the terrible harm he had caused to the families of his victims in the city of milwaukee and that his doctors believed his criminal behavior had been motivated by mental disorders. Uh, Jeffrey added that this medical knowledge had given him some peace, and that although he understood that society would never forgive him, he hoped God would. And I'm surprised this fucker believed in God. Well... (laughs) He ended up by stating, I know my time in prison will be terrible, which it was, but I deserve whatever I get because of what I have done. Yes, you did. Thank you, your honor. And I am prepared for your sentence, which I know will be the maximum. I ask for no consideration, end quote. On February 17, 1982, he was convicted of 15 of the 16 murders he had committed and was sentenced to 15 terms of life imprisonment at Columbia Correctional Institution in Portage. Jeffrey was later sentenced to a 16th term of life imprisonment for an additional homicide committed in Ohio in 1978 for Stephen Hicks. The death penalty was not an option for Judge Graham to consider at the penalty phase as Wisconsin had abolished capital punishment and fun fact 1853. So we are well past that. Mm-hmm. After sentencing, uh, his father Lionel and stepmother Sherry requested to be allowed a 10-minute private meeting with their son before he was transferred. This was this request was granted and they exchanged hugs. Three months after his conviction in Wisconsin, he was extradited to Ohio to be uh, tried for the murder of his first victim, Stephen Hicks. He again pleaded guilty to the charges and was sentenced to a 16th term life of imprisonment on May 1st, 1982. On August 5th, 1991, a candlelit vigil to celebrate and heal the Milwaukee community attended more by more than 400 people was held. Um, present at the vigil were community leaders, gay right activists, and family members of several of Dahmer's victims. The vigil was an effort for the community to share their feelings of pain and anger over what happened. Um, and it was just, you know, over a heightened racial tension in Milwaukee, that's when all the crimes were committed. 
And the vigil was to bring unity and it was an outlet for the affected community as well. Uh, Jeffrey's estate actually was awarded to the families of 11 of his victims who had sued for damages. So, I mean, some good came out of it, I guess. Yeah. Um, Milwaukee Civic Pride Group was quickly established in an effort to raise the funds to purchase and destroy many of Jeffrey's possessions. And I would assume that it would be all of the memorabilia. So it was just to clean up all of the memorabilia that he had in there that were actually human body parts. So that is good. Nobody yeah. Uh, okay. So the group pledged four hundred and seven thousand dollars, including a hundred thousand gift by Milwaukee real estate developer Joseph Zilber for the purchase of Donner's estate. Five of the eight families represented by Jacobson agreed to the terms and the possessions were subsequently destroyed and buried in an undisclosed Illinois landfill. And I feel like that was a good call because I feel like some creepy fuck would go and like get that and sell it or something like that or jack off on it. Then Lionel Dahmer with his second wife, Sherry, both have refused to change their surname, um, so they're keeping the Dahmer, and have professed their love for Jeffrey in spite of his crimes, which I'm sure it's hard as the father, but like, you just blatantly just say, you know, we love him no matter what. I'd be like, I have a no matter what for me. <laughs> that's just me, I guess. You have kids, so I don't know if the feeling is different. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Your kids that's a... With your strong wife. I think that I would have intervened long before my kids got to that point. That's a good point. So that actually brings me to my next point here. So in 1994, Lionel published a book called A Father's Story and donated a portion, didn't donate all of it, but a portion of the proceeds from his book to the victim's families. However, two of the victim families sued Lionel for using their names in the book without obtaining prior consent, which is a big no-no if you don't know that, now you know. Um, Stephen Hicks' family filed a wrongful death suit against Lionel and Sherry and former wife which is Joyce, his biological mother, citing parental negligence as the cause for the claim. So basically, um, they ne they were neglectful towards Jeffrey. He grew up and he became what they made him into, and that was their thing. Mm -hmm. However, Joyce Flint did die of cancer on November 27th, 2000. So after that, obviously, she wasn't a part of it anymore. Um, right. He obviously changed her name to Flint. It isn't clear if she did that right after the divorce or after hearing everything that happened with her son. But I mean, that could have gone either way, I feel like. Mm -hmm. 
David, the younger brother, changed his last name and lives out of the spotlight. So nobody has heard anything about him, which is for the best. Yeah. And the Oxford Apartments was demolished and it remains a vacant lot surrounded by a fence today. Some talk about having like a playground built on it to represent like hope or unity um, and community has been talked about, but it just hasn't happened. Um, that would be one haunted playground. I know. I, I almost feel like you shouldn't do anything on that type of land. And as we all know, Jeffrey was killed in prison by Christopher Scarver. Some call it prison justice. Other refer it to a flat-out cold-blooded murder. But all I know is that Jeffrey landed in the right place, which was prison. And if you play the game, you got to live by that type of life's rules. And with that comes the potential of being stabbed or murdered or any type of way um, in prison. So pretty much call it karma, call it what you will. So I want to leave this case with these final thoughts. Let's not fetishize the killers. I often see um t-shirts with you know Jeffrey Dahmer on it or like oven mitts or whatever and I think that's pretty laughable um just taking the information you know and don't idolize the, the killers the rapists the school shooters the monsters um we should be learning from their behavior we should be learning on how to spot um, you know, potential threats like this on what could happen and always be in remembrance of the victims and survivors because ultimately it's their stories. It's not the people that um, do do the crimes. It's it's theirs. Definitely. And I'm finally fucking done. <laughs> <laughs> and parents, pay attention to your kids. Like, if my kid was doing, like, one-tenth of this weird shit that was going on (laughs) yeah yeah they would have been in therapy and i would be closely monitoring their activities right you would be living in my house getting drunk not going to work and bringing people home and just the all of it right yeah pay attention to what's going on around you i mean it's not really necessarily their fault because he's an adult and he gets to make his own choices but there's well, definitely warning could... signs. There's weird shit going on. Exactly. I was just about to say there were definitely buildups to his, yeah. you know, it was like, okay, I, I'm doing this and I like it. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I got away with this and I really, really like that feeling. So I'm going to do this. And it's just like escalation over escalation. And he lived in a house where his dad was off, you know, fucking his coworker and his mom was on the bed just you know, pill popped out. And it's like, no wonder he didn't have any bounds because nobody was watching him. Yeah. Kids need supervision, people. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it. I'm done with Jeffrey Dahmer. (laughs) You did such a great job. That was so much to go through. That was. You were very dedicated. (laughs) (laughs) I was. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just glad I'm done. Yeah, because I couldn't have done it. It was a lot. 
I had to, yeah, I mean, it took me a year to do it. I knew we had to do it at some point. And I'm like, all right, this is the time, right. I guess. I know, because everybody's always asking, you're in Wisconsin, you haven't done Dower. Like, yeah, I'm like, no Ooh. shit. <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> all right, take us away. Okay, I'm going to take us away. I'm going to tell the story of Dona May Barrel today. And my sources are thecharlieproject.org, jsonline.com, fox6now.com, and Wisconsin Circuit Court Access. So Dona May was, and I hope I'm saying her name right, it's D-O-N-A-M-A-E. So I think that'd be Dona instead Dona, of Donna. Donna May. I don't know. Could go either way. Okay. I don't know either. She was last seen May 6th in 1979 at her home in Muskego, Wisconsin, where she lived with her husband, John, and their two young daughters. And John said on the night of her disappearance, him and, let's go with Donna May. Donna May had gotten into an argument and she left in the family car to cool off. Okay. Later that night, around 1020, he said she still had not returned home. So he was sick of waiting and he went to bed. He says then about an hour later, he was awakened by the sound of a car pulling into the garage and a door slamming downstairs. He says he then heard someone moving around inside the house. So he assumed his wife had returned home. And he reports he next heard a car slowly turning around and pulling away in the gravel lot across the street. So... I want to say something about this story right away okay it sounds so suspicious to remember every detail of what had happened like first mm -hmm. i was awakened by this sound and then i heard this sound if you're actually sleeping do you necessarily know what wakes you up because i generally like i could be like oh i heard something but i'm not gonna say i heard a car pulling into the garage you might hear that if you're like already awakened by something but I've been awakened by an owl, and I know that it was an owl, so, uh, but I feel like that's really specific. Yeah, it was just, like, the detail after detail after detail that made me be, like... Yeah, it's, like, you, you want it's me... It's a lot to, of details. Yeah, like, you want me to know, like, more than I should know. Yeah. Just felt like a lot of details to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, unless he might have a really great memory. But in general, I feel like people are like, oh, yeah, something woke me up and I heard a car coming in the garage and then I heard something. So I thought she was home. I went back to sleep. Right. But like, I heard a car slowly turning around. Like, see, the slowly part, yeah, that I, d I don't agree with. How would you know it was slowly turning? And yeah, that's a lot. Unless you're watching. Yeah, it just seemed like a lot of extra detail, on extra unnecessary details to me. For sure. But I analyze everything, so. Well, I mean, I think you should when it comes to these type of cases, though, because every every single thing that somebody says that you should be looking at is worth looking into. True. So eventually, John began to wonder why Donna Mae had not come to bed. So he went downstairs to investigate. He found that the garage door was wide open and that the pin that holds the garage door shut was missing. 
There was no sign of Donna May. Family car was in the garage. All of her clothing was still there, but she would never be heard from again. Three days later, John finally reported her missing. He said that she had taken $200 and left, and he wasn't concerned about her being gone because they had been experiencing problems in their marriage. Uh, okay. Yeah. Her family, however, did not agree. They said she would never abandon her children. She was a devoted mother. And then comes John's suspicious activities after her disappearance. He had admitted to everyone that they had been arguing, but he wouldn't say what they were arguing about. Mm -hmm. And he also did all of the laundry, all of the laundry. And he was that husband who did laundry. I was going to say... I don't like yeah, that. It's not just like, I'm a helpful husband. I'm going to do the laundry since my wife ran away with $200. No. no. Uh, family and friends say that even when his wife had been very ill, he still made her do the laundry. He still wasn't doing the laundry. So for him to do the laundry now was like super suspicious to everyone immediately. Okay. First of all, what a prick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's oh. not a great guy. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. And then family and friends said that there was a rug and a quilt that were still stained after they had been washed. Yeah. When I say he washed everything, he was washing rugs and everything. This is why men don't do laundry. You can't just throw a rug in there. (laughs) Roll up the rug and throw it. No, sir. He's crumpling it into the washer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then... Additionally, John never even told his co-workers that his wife was missing. He just went on about his life like normal, just went to work. He even went out bowling right after her disappearance, like nothing had happened. Oh my God, you can't just go bowling. No. And then his story and his children's story about the day of her disappearance was also different. He said that the family had been out shopping and then they had all went out to dinner together. And the kids were like, no, we'd never left the house. Our parents were fighting all day. Our mom was sick. And we last saw our mom when she put us to bed. So he wants us to believe that she just put them to bed and then she was just like, yeah, good night. Fuck you guys. We're leaving. No, sir. No. No. It's not adding up. Mm-mm. After Donna May's disappearance, her sister came to stay at her house and help with the children. And when she arrived, she began to notice things that made her suspect foul play. So she found bloodstains on the wall in the garage and on a bottle that was in the family vehicle. So she reported this to the police and they also began to suspect that John was involved in her disappearance. Yeah, no shit yeah but in the 1970s there was no dna testing available yet but they could do blood typing and they said that they found blood that matched on a maze and john could not explain how the blood had gotten there of course and there was also signs of a struggle in the garage like things had been knocked over mm-hmm. like there was some kind of incident in the garage my thing is you waited three days to report her missing you could have thrown the rug away and p- like picks up the garage and wipes the blood off just saying 
Right, you're washing rugs and you're not washing the walls with the blood stains on it. Like uh, these these people don't know how to. We're do reporting, it. like, hey, maybe she got kidnapped in the garage. There's blood over here. Yeah, clearly he knew something. Maybe you're was gonna go with that story. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. this this guy doesn't know what he's doing. No, he's not very good at this. No. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a professional. Definitely not a professional <laughs> at all. No. And so then it comes out that their relationship had been very troubled. Donna Mae had gone from, before she was with him, she was a very independent woman. She had a career. Once they got together, she had been fully dependent on John, which probably oh, no. was the way he wanted it to be. No. He kept her separated from everyone. He gave her very little money to have for herself. She really only communicated with one friend that lived in Michigan and she would write her letters. She wrote her like 35 to 40 letters a year. Oh my God. Yeah. And she had confided in the friends that John was abusive. He had even thrown her down the basement stairs before. And he had also allegedly asked her to sign a document saying that the house would be solely his if she were to die. Oh. And she refused to sign the document. Oh God. And her friend was so worried about her, she offered to pay her $500 cash to leave him. Like, I don't have a lot of money, but I'll give you $500 so you can leave. Oh, man. Ugh. And when all this stuff started coming out, he did admit to the police that he had struck Donna May on multiple occasions. He also admitted that he had been having an affair for the last two years of his marriage. Okay, so this guy... Forces her to do laundry when she's sick. Cheats mm-hmm. on her, beats on her, tries to make her sign these suspicious documents. Mm-hmm. And like, what a charming man he is. Like, where, where, did they, where did these women find these men? I don't know. I don't get it. At the courthouse, getting divorced by his first wife? I don't know. So he had been married previously, and his first wife had left him for cruel and unhuman treatment. Oh, God. Oh, I don't. After just two years of marriage. I've never heard that stated as a reason for divorce before. So I can just imagine the things he was doing to her. Yeah, that makes me uh, feel uneasy. Yeah, and I'm proud of her for leaving, especially that was back in the 70s. It was much harder to get up and leave. So good job to the first wife. Fuck yeah. And so three months after Donna Mae's disappearance, John filed for divorce. So he could remarry. Mm -hmm. So he went on to remarry. And he also abused the third wife. And multiple other people that he was in relationships with after that. So basically, it was a string of abusive relationships, just one after another. So he's a Ugh. real great guy. Gross. Mm-hmm. In February of 2019, John was finally charged with Donna May's murder. And he was arrested in Florida, where he was living at the time. He did go to a jury trial where he was found guilty after just five hours of deliberation. Despite the fact that there's nothing more than circumstantial evidence tying him to the case. They never right, found her. Right. I was just about to say there's no body. There's, there's no, no body. murder weapon. There's no 
real timeline of what went where, how things went down? Nope, there is nothing. But he was still convicted and still sentenced to a mandatory life sentence. So he is appealing. He has filed appeals. He's still appealing currently because most of the evidence against him was the character evidence. It was basically like he's an abusive asshole. So he had to have killed his wife, who he was also abusing. Like he abuses every woman in his life. Yeah. And that's basically what convicted him because his attorneys are saying that there was no evidence that it was even blood that was in the garage they Mm. were saying that the testing did not show that it was blood that it did not show that it was her blood that he's basically just convicted because of this evidence and that this evidence shouldn't have been allowed in at the trial because it's other acts evidence and the judge should have ruled against it and they should have had to have actual factual evidence to convict him but the jury was like no we might not have the evidence but you did it fuck you pretty much i agree and i disagree because i feel like if it were any other person if this was um because it says a president a president doesn't it like it it shows that based off of other people's opinion and testimony you can go and serve a whole life sentence for the 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 way people look at you the way people think that you are um but it also shows that you're you are showing a pattern there is clear signs of distress in this marriage and with every person that he's involved with so obviously what she's not going to leave her family what else could this mean so I get it on both ends but it would just it would be really sad if this happened to somebody that would never do anything to harm the person that they're married to the person that they love you know right that's that's exactly the way I was looking at it I was looking like in my opinion he looks guilty yeah but that's just a feeling. I feel right. like he's guilty. I can't point to anything specific and say this shows that he actually is beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. Right. He's yeah. an asshole. We know that. Yeah. Is he a and I feel like he was basically convicted for being an abusive asshole. A convicted asshole. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was 79 at the time in 2019. So it's not like he has a long life. it's crazy yeah that he was convicted I mean I don't disagree that he probably did it but I agree with you that there could be other people in this situation that didn't do it right yeah and any other judge can look at this case and be like well you know this case sets the tone and we did we did convict a man based off of very little evidence and you know we we can do the same on this other case and it's a slippery slope for sure but I get it for this I completely understand he was a a complete asshole but I don't know if he was a an official murderer yeah 
Yeah, I haven't reviewed all of the evidence from the case, but from what I have seen, there really isn't much. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. So if anybody has any information, they will still accept that. What a story. Because her wow. family still wants to find her. I'm sure. That's yeah. Worst yeah. thing in these cases, like even when you get so-called justice because someone is locked up, you still don't have your family member to lay to rest you still don't actually know because it's not like he was convicted and he eventually confessed or anything he's still claiming he had nothing to do with it I'm sure yeah and you know uh, I've read and I've listened to a lot of um testimonies where the families are in court looking at the person's killer and they are still unsettled and they they still have unfinished business because mm -hmm. their their person their the their loved one is nowhere to be found and it, yeah you you have the the killer you have the whole um the timeline of what happened you have everything except the actual person and that is it means a lot to to people and that yeah that's hard yeah definitely oh donna donna may yeah. makes me so sad it's very sad all right okay that's, I got. that's a great story thanks for telling us that you're welcome thank you all right we love you guys yes we do bye bye All the Sins of Wisconsin was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Fallon and Mims. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, supporters, friends, and family that continually allow us to do what we love. If you love our show as much as we love you, please give us a glowing rating and review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we are up to and email us your sinner tales at allthesinsofwi at gmail.com. Episodes of All the Sins of Wisconsin are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't, don't forget, forget, we love you. Love you.